Hi, this is Bucky Stanton, and on this episode of Technology Stories, I talked to Sarah Pritchard, Associate Professor in Science and Technology Studies at Cornell and author of Confluence, The Nature of Technology and the Remaking of the Rhone, as well as the tentatively entitled From Blue to Black Marble, Knowing Light Pollution in the Anthropocene. Thanks so much, Sarah, for coming in. I, I really wanted to bring you into Technology Stories to talk about this kind of interesting conversation that's been happening since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic about this unforeseen benefit uh, of all industrial society slowing, slowing or shutting down, and that's these clear skies. Uh, first, it was images of COVID-19 patients in Wuhan being wheeled out to these beautiful sunsets they'd never seen. Uh, then it was cities around the world like Delhi and Paris and cities near the Alps, I remember, having reduced car emissions and being able to see these huge landscapes uh, and, and ways the cities were situated in valleys that they hadn't been before and the kind of social media craze over that. And there's even been a reduction in overall atmospheric haze, leading some to say that there's been these minorly clear nighttime skies for stargazing. And so I wanted to bring you in to, to really talk about this as a technological problem. Um, and so can you help us understand some of the ways in which the clarity of the sky is a technological problem and perhaps many kind of inter interlinking and working together? Sure. Thanks for the question for having me. Um, I'll say that my work does focus on night skies right now and artificial light at night, but I've appreciated the opportunity to think more broadly about skies during the day and also not just artificial light, but pollution more broadly. Mm. You know, in some ways, Clearer um, or typically less clear skies are and aren't a technological problem. They are a technological problem in the sense that pollution results from different kinds of technologies, small scale and big scale, from individual cars to big highway systems, factories and plants airplanes, you know, lots of different kinds of, of technologies. Also artificial light at night, which I study. So different kinds of technologies both artifacts and systems release particulates or gases, or in the case of, of uh, electric light, light into the night sky. And together, those have contributed to darker skies or less clear skies in a variety of times and, and places. Um, and certainly to try to address this, regulatory agencies and industries and sometimes individuals have tried to make the situation better by developing technological fixes or techno fixes, either to say shield lights or to control the amount of soot or particulates coming out of an industrial smoke sack. Um, but in some ways, cl clearer skies and normally unclear skies are not just technological problems on, on the one hand and solutions on the other, which I've just talked about. Um, pollution generally is a political, economic, social, and cultural problem. And we need to think about it not just as a technological problem, but in these other dimensions as well. And the ways in which the technological problem is actually connected to the economic, the social, the political, and so forth. Wow, that's a fascinating. Uh, I think eminently history of technology way to put that. Uh, 
but before we get to kind of a question about, you know, what should we do? I want to ask you just a quick question about what approaches from the history of science and technology do you find useful for understanding all the historical processes and wrapping them together? Because as you've told us, uh, it's not just a technological problem, it's an economic, social, political, and these are all interrelated. Uh, the list goes on. It's a, me it's a symbolism question. It's a meaning making question. So what do you, how do you wrap this all together conceptually? The, the concept that I would really highlight that I think is useful is to think about clear and unclear skies through the lens of, of what I've called envirotechnical analysis or an envirotechnical lens. And um, of course, I, as I joke with my students, scholars like to coin words and phrases, right? This is often what we're rewarded for. Um, but this, this concept is trying to get at the idea that environmental processes and technological processes are always connected and inseparable, sometimes in more predictable ways and sometimes in these unanticipated ways that, ends up, that end up creating challenges for people later, generations later. Um, and what I would want to emphasize is that sky clarity or lack of sky clarity is a result of both natural and cultural factors or natural and technological factors. Absolutely sky clarity is affected by the technologies we use, emissions, pollutants, particulates, artificial light at night and so forth, no question about that. Um, and these can be, again, small individual decisions or much more societal infrastructural decisions. But Sky clarity also depends on a number of environmental factors and processes like weather, geography, topography, whether there's volcanoes blowing up at that moment to give probably the most dramatic example, right? Um, so if we look at any particular time and place, there's both, to simplify and use this binary, there's both natural or environmental factors and technological factors that are explaining what's happening in the sky overhead, whether it's by day or by night. Um, and maybe this is more useful to think with um, through a couple of examples. So the first one I would give is thinking about the London smog. London has had periods of smog for centuries, well before industrialization in the 18th century. Coal was used for domestic purposes before it, it fueled industrialization. Um, so Londoners used coal to heat their homes. They also used wood as well. And this resulted in bad smog at times. Um, and a, a scholar by the name of John Evelyn wrote about this in the 18th um, excuse me, the 17th century, commenting on basically the smoggy conditions of, of London. Um, so it had to do with, say, using increasing amounts of coal and also using wood to heat homes and so forth. But it also had to do with the weather and topography of London and the ways in which inversions happened. And I think for anybody who's lived in a city or a place with inversions, whether it's Southern California, or Missoula, Montana, you know, you have experience of what inversions are like and suddenly it creates a big mess um, that can affect planes taking off, it can also affect people's health. So some of the scientists I've been working with who are studying artificial light at night, they've found that clouds in urban areas worsen or amplify artificial light at night because urban areas have more nighttime lighting. Mm -hmm. Cloudy areas, you know, or cloudy cities, um, basically the light reflects against the clouds and bounces back down. So the amount of light pollution is, is worse if 
it's cloudy in an urban area. What's interesting is if you're in a rural area where there's much less um, artificial light at night, typically clouds will darken the landscape rather than brighten the landscape because they're blocking natural sources of light like the moon or the stars or the Milky Way or air glow or other things. Um, and even on a very micro scale, this is crazy to think about, but if you're in an urban area where there's a lot of trees, that may reduce the light pollution that's escaping to the atmosphere because the trees are blocking a certain amount of how much artificial light is coming up. But to make things even wackier, it matters if they're evergreen or deciduous mm -hmm. and what time of year it is. Because if it's winter and deciduous trees and they've dropped their leaves, then actually more artificial light is going to reach the sky than if it was evergreens or if it was in the summer when those deciduous trees had their light had their leaves on. I said lights on, leaves on. That was a twist of the tongue. Um, so it's really interesting to think about how many different environmental and technological factors combine to shape the particular experiences of light pollution in a particular time and place for the people and the non-humans who happen to inhabit that area. Um, I think the downside to thinking about the complexity of this issue, rather than just saying it's artificial light at night, it's artificial, it's human caused, end of story, is that because there's multiple factors, our notions of causality and responsibility are more fluid and murkier. Mm. Um, and it's easier for people who might be responsible or groups for who might be responsible to say, hey, look, it wasn't us, it was the weather. You know, it wasn't my industrial plant, it was the bad weather that caused the smog and the inversion and the people's health issues. So we, we do have to think carefully about these more complex models or understandings of phenomena because they can be politically useful for powerful people to basically point the finger at nature rather than saying it's this messy entanglement of, of what I call envirotechnical processes. And that's an incredible segue to the closing question I want to ask you, which is, you know, what is the most important takeaway for this clear skies moment for particulate atmospheric pollution or night skies, whichever, or both, if you'd like to talk about, um, and just keep kind of writing the, the, the line you were on there about this being, sure. uh, it's so fascinating to me as a, as a CS or anything about politics that perhaps all the complexity has been aiding the enemy all along. Uh, what a, de what a depressing, depressing idea for a grad student, but perhaps you can give me some hope. <laughs> well, I don't know if I can give you hope or not, but um, I guess I would highlight two things, um, two take-home messages. One is that in discussions of, of clear skies, whether we're talking about daytime skies or nighttime skies, I'm always wary and increasingly wary of talking about humans or humanity and talking about human contributions to less clear skies or unclear skies, right? Because that doesn't differentiate among groups and it doesn't differentiate among, um, it doesn't differentiate among groups in terms of impact and responsibility, right? And this has been a lot of the criticism of the Anthropocene concept by humanists and artists and interpretive social scientists saying that the Anthropocene creates this universal notion of human when in fact climate change or climate emergency, climate crisis um, has to do with certain people and certain practices over the last 
to roughly 250 years. Um, but I've been disturbed by some of the narratives and the discussions that I've seen, whether it's social media and Twitter or even some newspaper articles and more, you know, professional forms of, of media and analysis. Um, I think we have to be very careful here. You know, yes, in a lot of ways, it's great that carbon emissions are down, pollution, air pollution is down, air travels down, all these kinds of things, right? And, not but, and, and at the same time, there's globally millions of people who are sick or have been sick. Thousands and thousands have died. Um, millions of people are unemployed in the U.S. alone or furloughed or have reduced hours. Um, in the U.S. context, many have lost their health insurance if they had access to it in the first place. Um, so if we only look at the environmental aspects of this in terms of isn't it great because we have these environmental benefits without thinking about the human impact or the, in fact, the differential human impact, um, that's a huge problem in many ways. Um, and in part, it's a problem because to, to, to have some kind of narrative that says basically, you know, hey, the environment is better in, in isolation without thinking about those tragedies, many tragedies, individual and, and collective, these, these kinds of statements reproduce some of the really problematic and even dangerous assumptions in what scholars sometimes call traditional environmentalism or mainstream environmentalism. Um, but scholars like Miles Powell have talked about um, and shown the ways in which some misanthropic and even racist ideas undergirded conservation and environmentalism. So when we make those kinds of, or some people make those kinds of simplistic sweeping statements, that's feeding into this genealogy where environmental benefits come at the cost of certain individuals or groups of people, and that's really problematic. So I think one of the take-home messages that I have about this, and I've been thinking about a lot because of the classes I'm teaching this semester, is that we really should be looking at COVID-19 through the lens of environmental justice, not traditional environmentalism. Um, and there's more news articles coming out about actually how COVID-19 is an environmental justice issue that people who are exposed to more air pollution are more vulnerable to the virus. Well, we know from environmental justice activists and scholars that communities of color, especially poor communities of color, are differentially affected by air pollution or other kinds of pollution. Sometimes that air pollution then causes underlying health issues, which also is, uh, um, you know, increases the likelihood of becoming sick. So it can be connected to something like air pollution. It is, of course, entangled also with social policy or health policy in the U.S. in terms of who has access to health care, what kind of health care, is it effective health care, and so forth. Um, so I think it's really important at this moment, even though there's some reasons to um, be positive that pollution's down, um, carbon emissions down are down and so forth, that we shouldn't sacrifice the vo most vulnerable people individually and collectively within societies and across the planet to quote unquote solve environmental problems like pollution or climate change. Um, that's not responsible. 
And some scholars and commentators have called this basically an eco-fascist argument to say that we should give up on poor people of the world in order to solve environmental problems. Um, and I'm deeply uncomfortable with that. And I, I hope many other people are as well. Yeah. And I've never really even thought about it as, as that way. It's almost the, uh, it's, it's, it's flipping, it's taking, it's replacing the importance that, that humanity and an ideal humanity had in like a fascist uh, mindset with the importance in the environment. And I've never actually put it together that, that clearly. Thank you so much for, for such a clear and also prescient kind of takeaway. Uh, I really appreciate you coming in to technology stories and talking about this immensely complicated, multi-layered uh, problem and not shying away from both the complexity and the pragmatics. Uh, but thank you so much, Sarah Pritchard, for, for coming on today. Thanks for having me.